You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, today is Thursday, January 27, 2022. We're here to discuss uh, the recent book by Chris Coyne and Abigail Hall, uh, Manufacturing Militarism. And the way this panel will go is that we will uh, first have Abby and Chris. Abby will do the presentation of the book. And then we have with us uh, Professor Randy Holcomb from Florida State University and Professor Risa Brooks uh, from Marquette University. And we'll uh, turn it over to them and then a chance for Chris and Abby to respond to the comments. My role uh, is is just to moderate, uh, though I might reserve the right to ask a question or two. Um, but uh, without any further delays, let's turn it over to uh, Abby, um, who is a professor at Bellarmine uh, University in uh, Kentucky. And so, Abby, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you guys for having us today to, to talk about our work. Um, so one of the things that I typically do when I start off discussing this project is I try to put it within context. And so oftentimes when people think about propaganda, they tend to think about it within the context of autocratic regimes. So particularly if we're talking within the contemporary context. So if I mention like North Korean propaganda, for example, um, there was a recent story, for instance, about the Kim family inventing the burrito in uh, North Korea, for example. Those kinds of things don't typically surprise people. But one of the things that maybe is more surprising is the idea of propaganda being used and disseminated within democratic context, particularly within a, a current or a contemporary state of affairs. And so the way that I see this project, or the way that I see us thinking about this project is taking and applying a mix of primarily public choice economics and institutional economics to understand the creation, dissemination of, and the role of propaganda within democratic societies. And we focus this book in particular on understanding propaganda directed toward US citizens as it relates to contemporary US foreign policy within the broader context of the US war on terror. So I'll come back to this a little bit later on, but in thinking about from the beginning, why it matters. So what's, what's the purpose of talking about this in the first place? Propaganda is important because it can undermine those critical aspects of a liberal society in a democratic system by inhibiting the checks and balances that are supposed to be preventing government from predating upon its citizens. Propaganda prevents citizens from obtaining accurate information regarding the government's activities. And like I'll talk about here in a few minutes, this is particularly true when we talk about things that are related to the national security state. The other thing that we really talk about and emphasize within this book, and something that's a theme throughout um, some of the other work that Chris and I have done together, is this idea that propaganda works to not only garner support for specific policies, but also fosters this broader, more general culture of militarism. And this is primarily done through exaggerating threats. Um, so talking about external threats as being more potent or more likely than what they actually are and framing the state or the actions of the state as being the best or maybe even the only potential solution to this problem. So when we talk about propaganda, um, clarifying terms is necessary. So and depending upon who it is that you read, you will find different people defining propaganda in different ways. Um, we define propaganda as having three uh, particular elements. It's purpose purposefully biased, misleading, or false. It is uh, used to promote some kind of political cause. 
And thirdly, it's bad from the perspective of the recipients in that it limits their ability to engage in rational decision-making. The purpose of propaganda is to try to shape the views, the beliefs, and the actions of the target audience, so the individual or individuals receiving the propaganda, so that they align with the goals or the ideas of the propagandist, even if those goals and purposes are at odds with those of, of the recipient. So with this in the background, um, thinking about this framework that we lay out for understanding propaganda, and we start off by thinking about the uh, conceptualization of the idealized state. So if the state were working perfectly the way that we would want it to, what exactly would this look like and what would be the potential role for propaganda? Well, within this idealized protective state, you have the government that is protecting well-defined private property rights, um, and they're protecting them from threats. This can be both internal threats as well as external threats. Also within this broader discussion or conceptualization of the idealized state, you have officials acting as a singular entity. And um, this is often discussed within the context of these individuals acting to maximize some broader social welfare function. The social welfare function is assumed to be known, it's assumed to be stable, and that the actors have the necessary information in order to be able to maximize it. Also importantly within this idea of the ideal protective state is you have the appropriate and, uh, you have appropriate and effective mechanisms, checks and balances on these government actors. So they can effectively be rewarded or punished for engaging in behaviors that are either pleasing to their constituents or displeasing to their constituents, depending upon the circumstances. Elected officials within this idealized state are only going to engage in protective activities. So protecting citizens from internal and external threats when it's within the best interest of the citizenry. And that would be the only time that we would expect to actually see this. Within this model, there is effectively no room whatsoever for political opportunism. There's the presence of symmetric information. So individuals know what it is that the other parties know and they have access to this information. And there's effective reward and punishment mechanisms. So deviating from what it is that constituents want um, or deviating from things that advance the public welfare is going to effectively result in, in discipline. So this is the idealized situation, but we know that in reality, what actually happens is very different from, from this particular framing of thinking about how, how government works. The incentives that are facing elected officials are actually much, much weaker than what we would want or what we see in this idealized model. And instead of being categorized by well-aligned incentives and symmetric information, in fact, what we see are layers of principal agent problems. So principal agent problems are what appear when you separate control of an asset from ownership of an asset. So examples I think are particularly helpful. When I go to my doctor, um, my doctor has more information about what tests might actually be needed than, than what I do, they're the expert. Now, hopefully, my doctor is working within my best interest and only recommending the tests that I actually need. However, it may be within the financial interest of my doctor to order some additional tests that I don't really need and then bill my insurance. This is an example of a principal agent problem. If we think about this within the context of business, you think about managers versus shareholders. Shareholders being the owners of the company, managers being those who are supposed to be doing what's in the best interest of the shareholders, but their incentives or their uh, goals might not be perfectly, perfectly aligned. And we see similar things in politics. So we think about uh, principal agent problems within the context of elected officials and voters. And we also think about principal agent problems within the context of bureaucracies or bureaucratic actors and politicians, the politicians who are, in this case, the principals who are supposed to be working or have the interest of, of the voters in mind. Now, in theory, these principal agent problems can be mitigated. 
And in some cases, these can be completely overcome if principals have the ability and the incentive to acquire information and the ability to, to act upon it. Note that this assumes that if they can get that information, that the effective enforcement mechanisms are actually available and that they can use them. It's at this point that we want to really think about a variety of different public choice mechanisms and concepts that illustrate the fact that these checks and balances or these potential reward and punishment mechanisms may not actually be as strong in reality as we would like them to be. So we think about things like the limited effectiveness of voting. So thinking about rational ignorance or the idea that voters, since they don't really incur the cost from being uninformed, they don't get uh, a lot of information before they step, step into the voting booth. We also talk about the time between elections. So if a politician say something is able to be connected to the policy of a particular politician, by the time that politician comes up for re-election, it may well be that voters have forgotten or simply the fact that when people are really angry about something, the next time that they're able to vote in say a federal election, a substantial amount of time has elapsed. Also talking about things like the presence of special interest groups that a small number of heavily concentrated votes may have undue influence on a particular politician or group of politicians. Related to that, thinking about the incentives facing vote-seeking politicians and the behaviors that go along with that. And also importantly, thinking about and discussing the implications and consequences of the economics of bureaucracy. So within a market society, we think, or market structure, we think about profit and loss. And we think about that as driving decisions. Profit within a market context indicates that your business is providing something of value to society, whereas incurring a loss indicates the, the opposite. You have an incentive to course correct. But when we're talking about government bureaus, you're not talking about things that are operating within that market context. Um, there aren't these profit and loss signals you're not competing for customers as you are in the market space. Instead, what you're doing is you're competing for portions of government resources. So you have to have an alternative way of measuring success. So a large literature of this, thinking about people like William Niskanen and people who've written after him, thinking about things like budget maximization, also maximizing or expanding your number of subordinate personnel, building in slack into your organizational budgets and, and so on. So individually, we think about these things as weakening this idealized model. But certainly when we think about these things as a whole and taking them together, this is really important because it weakens and potentially thwarts these incentive aligning features of democracy. So then adding on to this larger public choice framework, we then introduce this conceptualization of propaganda, working with the definition that, that I mentioned earlier. So within the book, we talk about propaganda, we discuss its history in the United States, which to, to summarize just very, very briefly, has been present basically since the revolutionary period, but you go from having propaganda that is highly decentralized to something that is much more concentrated and centralized, particularly when we start getting into World War I and then particularly World War II and, and beyond. We talk about propaganda in terms of its functions and then also the tools of propaganda. And I think those are worth talking about in a bit more detail. So with respect to the functions of propaganda, we talk particularly about three. So the first function of propaganda is to transmit and frame information as it's being sent out to citizens. So trying to orient or frame people's thinking about a particular issue. One really nice example of this is if you think about the names of military operations. So think about Operation Just Cause, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Valiant Guardian. Listen to the vocabulary that is being used. 
it's freedom. It's enduring. It's valiant. Like all of these nice qualities that are automatically being ascribed to these without paying any attention to what actually is going on with these particular operations. The second function of propaganda that we discuss is that propaganda operates as a coordination device intended or designed to generate a common knowledge uh, to coordinate citizens around a government's objective or goals. Creates a shared expectation of self and others. Um, the best way to illustrate this, I think, is with an example. If you've ever been to a sporting event, whether we're talking high school sports, college sports, um, but particularly if you're talking about major league sports, so the NFL game or an NHL game. Um, my household, we have attended quite a few hockey games. And when you go to hockey games, you're almost always doing the national anthem at the beginning. And then oftentimes, sometime in the middle of the game, there is this salute to service where people are expected to stand up, direct their attention to a service member on the ice. Everyone typically applauds and there's a lot of fanfare. That is a shared expectation. Everybody is expected to stand up and applaud the military member on the ice in, during this part or uh, this intermission in the game. To deviate from that creates at a bare minimum a very or potential for a very, very awkward social interaction. So propaganda effectively can help shape those types of expectations to the point where if someone deviates from those expectations, again, at a minimum, you can think about making people uncomfortable. The last function of propaganda that we discuss is one that's particularly important and factors in in a variety of different areas. And this is this idea of instilling and reinforcing this collective fear within the domestic citizenry. The idea behind this is that there is some threat that is imminent. Importantly, there is then this subsequent demand for government to do something in an effort to combat this threat. Oftentimes we see this um, discussed as government again being the only solution. This fear is important in that it effectively opens up space for government agents to or agencies to expand not only the scale of their operations, but also the scope of their operations, which is something that figures into our work in this project, but's figured into our other projects as well. So after discussing these functions of propaganda, we complete our framework um, by talking about various propaganda techniques. And um, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are things that we see commonly, and they're things that we point to throughout the different case studies that we discuss in the book. So one of the most common propaganda techniques that we see is this appeal to authority. So propaganda is often endorsed by some sort of authority. Um, it's intended to bring credibility to whatever message is being conveyed while simultaneously reinforcing this idea that government is the solution to this threat or this potential threat. You'll often see things like official seals or logos. Uh, a particular salient example of this would be something like the TSA. So imagine any time that you've ever flown, next time that you walk into an airport and you head to the TSA, look at what's around. Everybody who's working there is in an official uniform. They have badges and they have uh, patches on. Everything is looking very official. Again, this idea you're conveying credibility. The second propaganda technique that we discuss is an appeal to patriotism. This idea that support for a particular cause or a particular policy um, is linked to uh, being a good citizen or being linked to the common good. So support for a policy in this case is linked with or uh, goes along with advancing the national interest. Therefore, being against the policy or pushing back against it is to push back against the common good and against this idea of national interest. Along with this is this discussion or this idea of appealing to us versus them. This attempt to separate people into very clear in-groups and out-groups uh, and effectively removing any type of subtlety. So thinking about this in terms of if you want to think of something like a war, 
the in-group would be the nation. So if we're talking about the United States, the United States and their allies. And then the out-group being whoever the United States opponent is and their allies. This is important because it really works to try to collapse infinitely complex issues um, into something simple, something that's easy for, for people to understand. Uh, and then the last thing that we discuss as a propaganda technique is an appeal to simple signs and slogans, things that are memorable, easy for people to think about. So examples of this would be something like, you probably know the famous World War II poster of Rosie the Riveter. Everybody can imagine it if I ask you to conjure it up. It's Rosie, she's flexing her muscles saying we can do it too. Or you think about um, keep calm and carry on. Or a more contemporary example would be former President George W. Bush standing on an aircraft carrier with the mission accomplished banner behind him. The message is very, very simple. So we think about all of these things within this context and we put it within this national security space where not only do you have these techniques around, not only do you have these public choice issues, but you also have this additional layer of secrecy. So when we talk about this national security space, so talking about war, talking about foreign intervention or anything, again, related to issues of quote unquote security, is you have this effective monopoly of information. Officials can decide what information is going to be released and when, um, how much details, do they give any details or do they give details later on? What does it include? Um, and while we might be able to think about, and people have argued that this type of secrecy is necessary, this is yet another way that effectively limits the ability of citizens to acquire information in order to be informed so that they're really prohibited from being able to check government if they want to. So with this framework in mind, um, we apply this to a number of different cases within the post 9-11 context. We dedicate two chapters to the war in Iraq. So one looking at what was happening prior to the US invasion of Iraq, and then what happened afterward. We talk about the use of propaganda in film, both in a historical context and a contemporary case. We talk about the use of propaganda in sport, and we also talk about propaganda within the context of the TSA. Um, and we conclude our analysis by offering some potential solutions to propaganda. Um, we place a heavy emphasis and a large burden on uh, members of society as pushing back against propaganda. But importantly, we talk about and we make distinctions between short-run consequences of propaganda and long-run consequences of propaganda. In the short run, propaganda is problematic because it influences the types of policies that citizens support. Um, and it may influence them in such a way that People will support policies even if they're directly against their particular, their own self-interest. In the long run, we talk about propaganda as being problematic and that it effectively threatens to undermine those very checks and balances that are critically important to a democratic society. Okay, thanks a lot, uh, uh, Pete, and uh, I'm delighted to be on the panel. Uh, I want to start out by thanking Chris and Abby for writing the book. Uh, it's a really nice book. It's well-written. It's informative. It's persuasive. And I guess for a book on propaganda, you'd hope that it would be persuasive. Um, and uh, just looking at the back cover of the book, I noticed that uh, I wrote a blurb that's on the back cover of the book. So I'll just start my comments with that, uh, with that blurb. I say the book makes a persuasive case that government propaganda is a real threat to a free society. Uh, so I, I want to focus my comments on a few aspects uh, of, of the book. And uh, first of all, uh, I, I want to note that the whole framework of the book basically uh, sets up a class-based society, like there are two classes of people uh, in society, the rulers and the ruled. I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, they quote a, a Hoover Commission report. Uh, on page 165 of the book, they say, individual liberty and free institutions cannot long survive when the vast powers of government may be marshaled against the people 
to perpetuate given policy or a particular group of office holders. Uh, nor can freedom survive if all government policies programs are sustained by an overwhelming government propaganda. Uh, and the page before, one, page 164, um, again, quoting the book, uh, they say, appreciating that those in power wish to maintain their privileged position in conjunction with the corrosive effects of the foundations of a free society of self-governing citizens makes clear the long-term threat posed by propaganda. But again, going back to the beginning of that quotation on 164, appreciating that those in power wish to maintain their privileged position. So um, I think it, it's in the book, but it's not really uh, 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 emphasized the class-based foundation uh, of uh, their analysis. Uh, they refer to a political elite. They differentiate them from the citizens. Uh, so there are, are two classes of people, the rulers and the ruled. Uh, and in some of my recent works, I've kind of focused on this, this division. I'll just say a word or two about it, that, that the division is inevitable. Because uh, when, you're, when you're making public policy for a large group of people, you can't have millions of people or even thousands of people uh, participate in the policymaking uh, process. Uh, if I go back and think about something along the lines of the Coase theorem, transaction costs prevent it. You can't have millions of people or thousands of people making public policy. It's always going to be uh, an elite few. And if you look at um, uh, history over several hundred years, prior to the Enlightenment, people viewed themselves as subjects of their government. Their duty was to serve the interests of the governments, uh, the, serve the interests of their leaders. And Enlightenment thinking reversed that relationship so that we're now thinking Rather than people serving their governments, governments should serve the interests of the citizens. Uh, so how does the ruling class maintain their grip uh, in, in light of this enlightenment idea, governments should be serving their citizens. And propaganda is a mechanism that encourages citizens to think they should serve the interests of their governments, that they should serve uh, the interests of the political elite. Uh, there's always gonna be a small number of actors uh, who are going to be the, the central source of control. And propaganda, this propaganda of democracy, what I like to call the ideology of democracy, makes it appear that the people who are in control are acting in the best interest of the citizens, uh, makes it appear that the citizens uh, are in control. And there's this romantic notion of democracy. Government is accountable to its citizens. Democratic political institutions lead governments to act in, in people's best interest. But uh, as Abby emphasized in her talk, people, uh, citizens tend to be rationally ignorant. They realize that any one citizen has no power. Uh, you, your one vote isn't gonna change the outcome of the election. Most individuals have no ability to influence public policy. Um, so there's this romantic notion of democracy that's reinforced by propaganda that government is accountable and controlled by its citizens, but it's not true. I mean, uh, a government is, is always authoritarian in the sense that a few people uh, write the rules and enforce the rules. Some governments are more constrained than others. So that's an interesting question that I'll set aside, but uh, it's just uh, the, the foundation of this analysis is a class-based society of rulers and, and the ruled. Uh, and the military is a particularly strong source, a fertile source of propaganda because it plays on people's tribal instincts. Uh, and a lot, I mean, when I thought about propaganda in the past, I focused on this idea about the tribal instincts. And again, Abby emphasized this when she spoke on page 10 of the book, uh, she says, a the book says, uh, propaganda entails identifying clear black and white distinctions between in-groups the nation and its allies, and outgroups, the enemies and their allies. Uh, so we all work together to, to fight our collective enemies. The state is the mechanism we use to fight that battle. Uh, and pro so propaganda directs us back toward that pre-enlightenment idea that citizens are servants of the state. The state's acting in our best interest, and so we should serve the state because the state's working for us. 
Uh, and just as a, a, an interesting little uh, uh, side note on this, uh, it struck me, this is going back to the presidential election of 2016, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it's kind of interesting the way uh, you saw their campaigns. And Trump was pretty good at, um, at mobilizing this us versus them, the ins versus out uh, idea. You know, foreigners are the enemy, uh, poor trade policies. Uh, we have porous borders. Uh, and, and even with regard to our allies, our NATO allies aren't paying their fair share of defense costs. It's us versus them. But who are the us? It's Americans. And who are the them? Well, it's foreigners, and foreigners don't vote. Uh, and, and in contrast, uh, Hillary uh, depicted uh, the Trump supporters as a basket of deplorables. So that's kind of interesting because those people vote. Uh, and so she's characterizing basically half the population as a basket of deplorables. So the ins and the outs, the us versus them, um, you know, her campaign was sort of alienating half of the people that trust Trump was including as, as the us's. Um, one thing I really like about the book is uh, its emphasis on the way that propaganda cultivates fear uh, among citizens. Uh, so the fear of climate change, the fear of COVID, of course, the fear of, of, of foreign enemies. And, and government represents the way that, that we can address those fears collectively. Uh, so the elites uh, stoke those fears. People are propagandized uh, into yielding to the political elite. You know, these people are protecting me from all of these threats. Uh, and I, I've tended in the past to think about propaganda more along the lines of tribalism. And so one thing that the book brought, brought my attention to caused me to think about is this idea, propaganda fostering tribalism versus fostering fear. Because uh, with uh, with tribalism and basically you get people to support the government. Hey, we're all on the same side. Uh, you know, the us versus them. Uh, but fear, basically, what that's doing is pushing people to see that they need to give government power in order to protect them. Uh, so this uh, patriotism versus fear. I mean, one thing I got out of the book really was the emphasis on the role of propaganda. Uh, in in creating fear. Uh, and uh, see, let me read another quotation uh, from the book, uh, part of which I'm going to take, take some issue with. This is on page 16 of the book. Um, Instead of viewing citizens as the driving force behind the actions of the state, we use propaganda, uh, the use of propaganda is grounded in the idea that citizens stand in opposition to the goals of political rulers. So I'm going to take issue with that in a second. The quote, later, the quote goes on. Uh, the relationship between citizens and the state shifts from one in which the citizenry is viewed as the primary driver of political actions to one where a small number of state actors become the central source of control. And there's that elites versus masses idea. And I fully buy into that. Uh, and again, re reading that quote, uh, the relationship between citizens and the state shifts from one in which the citizenry is viewed as the primary driver of political actions to one where a small number of state actors become the central source of control. But right at the beginning of, the, of that uh, quote, the, the use of propaganda is grounded in the idea that citizens stand in opposition to the goals of their political leaders. I mean, I think when you think about leadership, I mean, what is leadership? It's getting people to stand behind the leader to buy into an organization's common goals. So it's not necessarily that citizens are in opposition to the state, but rather the leaders are using propaganda to try to get citizens to buy into an organization's common goals. And that's true. I mean, if we're talking about corporate leaders or sports leaders, I mean, leadership means getting people to buy into and support the organization's goals. Uh, and uh, so, again, going back to that, that uh, ideology of militarism, uh, the state's protecting citizens from its enemies, people support the state. Uh, you either support the state or you're enemies of the people. You're with us or against us. Uh, and again, this plays on tribal instincts. Um, and the, the ideology of democracy basically says, hey, we're all on the same team, you know, let's get behind the leader. 
the ideology of militarism is saying there are threats out there. And so we need to sacrifice some of our freedoms in order to get the government to protect us. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of, of that with COVID policies now, where people are asked to give, give up a lot of their freedoms uh, in order to protect themselves from this threat from, from COVID. Uh, and I might uh, say in, in that context, uh, I'm at Florida State University, living in Florida, the free state. We don't have any mass mandates. We don't have any vaccine mandates. Our classes are all meeting in person. Things seem to be working okay here in the free state of Florida. So, but, but nevertheless, people are being scared with this COVID policies. Uh, and uh, uh, again, to quote from, from the book, propaganda, this is on page 17. Uh, propaganda facilitates a culture of militarism by exaggerating the actual risks from external threats and framing the state as being the ultimate source of order and protection. Well said. On the next page, page 18, uh, propaganda seeks to condition citizens to ignore the domestic threats from state power and instead accept increases in government scale and scope for their own good. Again, very well said. Uh, and uh, ahead several pages, one, page 164, uh, checking this power is difficult because of the secrecy that permeates permeates all corners of the security state. Uh, and this fear that's, that's uh, fostered by propaganda, uh, it's the engine of the ratchet effect that allows government to, to continue to scale up it, its actions. People are propagandized to believe that by giving up their freedom, government can protect them from threats and, and help their, their well-being. Uh, and the book uses the example of the TSA and so I'll just close by, by thinking a little bit about the TSA. I mean, the, the TSA was formed in order to make air travel safe, maybe keep us safe from domestic terrorism more generally, but mostly air travel. But it's interesting when you look at the scope and the reach of the TSA, um, you, you see these news stories about um, the TSA in just in the checks. Uh, they're finding people carrying large sums of money and they confiscate the money, civil asset forfeiture. Um, if people are carrying drugs. Uh, they confiscate the drugs. They, are, they arrest people. Uh, and this is worse than the police because they don't have a search warrant. They have no probable cause. And they're seizing people's money. They're seizing drugs. Drugs might be illegal, but the money's not necessarily illegal. Is it illegal to carry money on an airplane? And more than that, how is carrying money on an airplane a threat to air safety? But this is a perfect example of the TSA created for one function, and now its scope and its reach of power extends well beyond that. So I think I mean, that's a, a, a good example. Uh, let me close my comments there and again say, really wonderful book, and thank you, Chris and Abby, for writing it. Well, I agree. It is a terrific book. And I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And I have to say, I got madder and madder and I got through the book when we got to um, the Iraq war and, and sports and Hollywood. I was, you know, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think you're illuminating a dynamic that, you know, takes some courage to focus on. And I really appreciate that. And it's compelling. Um, in, so rather than just go on with praise, though, I wanted to pose some questions for you, some things that came up for me as I was thinking. And these aren't really criticisms. They're more sort of extensions or, or problems that I'm wondering if you had considered. Um, and I want to start out sort of a little bit narrow. Most of my questions are broad, but I want to start out narrow, focusing in a little bit on the vignette that starts the book on Afghanistan and the Whitlock revelations and the lying over, um, you know, sort of what happened in 20 years of war in Afghanistan. And um, one thing about propaganda that I really took away in the way that you're thinking about it is that it's very intentional and very premeditated in kind of a way. It's, it's, a, it's a calculated action, right? A calculated effort by elites to obscure um, the facts or their real motives or those sorts of considerations. And yet, when I think about um, how that actually works, I'm wondering if it's sometimes a little more complicated, especially um, 
in some, and you're getting at this a little bit, Abby, in your comments when you're talking about how there's sort of the short-term and the long-term effects, how it infuses culture. And part of what's going on with the military stuff, I think, is that um, because society has elevated military means and resources sort of to the pinnacle of legitimate state action, right? That is the only place where it's legitimate for the state to act, that um, that has all these follow-on effects, um, like you described, especially the citizen disengagement, but that that then has other perverse sort of mechanisms that it creates. And part of what's going on in that Afghanistan dynamic is not just sort of the premeditation of lying, but there's other things like something that a couple of war college professors wrote about quite bravely, I think, called ethical fading, whereby there's so many reporting requirements, there's so much expectation that the military can just get things done, that there's sort of misrepresentation on reporting on exactly what happens. So, and a lot of it is, you know, go along, get along kind of dynamic. So a lot of these folks, even though it's portrayed as sort of lying, aren't really in a premeditated kind of way thinking of what they're doing that way. They're they're really participating in a system that encourages sort of not great behavior that results in things that look like lying. So can we separate out and make that dynamic a little more complicated? The sort of second thing I'll, re- I'll say related to civil military relations um, has to do with sort of the politicization of the military. And I think that's a really important piece of what's going on in your story or it is related to your story which is that, you know, sort of this dynamic of, it's not just using DOD resources and contracts in, you know, for movies and things like that. It's actually using members of the military as political symbols and appropriating the social esteem of the military that's in part been created by some of the cultural dynamics that you're talking about. And that has become more and more acute. Now it's been going on a long time. You can go back Presidents from both sides have gone to West Point or other service academies, often West Point, to make these big foreign policy speeches, right? They always talk to the military when they're talking about foreign policy. You know, that that makes no sense. Why not go to a civilian university? So you have these dynamics that have happened a long time ago for a long time. But in recent years, we've seen even more efforts to sort of use military resources. Um, You know, most recently, a lot of stuff under Trump, right, which people have talked about. using, um, you know, wanting to have a big sort of Bastille Day type parade with military resources, the military sort of saying, no, we don't really need tanks ruining the streets in DC, we're not really going to do that. Um, You know, making big signature announcements, like immigration policy in the Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon with military people standing by you. So all this politicization dynamics is is a piece of your story that I would encourage you to think a little bit more about. And I could give you like uh, half an hour's worth of examples there, but I, I won't and I'll stop on that theme. Moving on to some broader issues. Um, you know, one of the things that I wondered is you, you make a really strong case for the effectiveness of propaganda and for when it works and how it works. But, you know, when doesn't it work? You know, are there examples of societal resilience, cases in which propaganda efforts failed or where society saw through it pretty quickly? You know, especially the dynamic with the Iraq war, where you have sort of the initial set of misrepresentations that you document, and then you have the follow on when things don't go very well, and there's an insurgency, etc. And there's more sort of misrepresentations that you document there, you know, that seems pretty successful and robust. You know, why does that work? You know, are there structural factors or cultural factors, or long-term feedback effects. You know, maybe that's something you could think about in some of your further work, is kind of looking at that tension. And I guess related to that, you know, what is a healthy situation? We know a lot about what is wrong, but what, in an idealized but not unrealistic manner, you know, portraying that, what, what should the goal be? You know, what does that look like? What are we working towards in order to sort of mitigate some of these nefarious effects of of propaganda? And um, let's see, looking through my notes here. um, 
one sort of solution that I wanted to raise for you or, or touch on a little bit, you talk about at the end of the book, laws, whistleblowers, media, citizen inoculation, you really come down on the side of citizen inoculation as sort of the big fix. But um, how to accomplish that? And I would say that some of some things that could really work are um, more emphasis on popular culture, sort of counter narratives um, to the sort of, uh, you know, dominant themes we see in portraying military resources and the military in, in film, right? Um, more, you know, you know, people in the military actually find it, have a lot of humor at the absurdity of the bureaucracy and they laugh a lot, right? It is, it's, it's funny and they joke and like, why don't we have more of that to humanize and not sort of vaunt the military and are there solutions with that? And is that a a vehicle? And I could see that they're actually, that actually is not unrealistic. There are people with money who might fund such for said projects, right? Whether or not DOD signs the contracts to allow them to use the fighter planes. Um, the, the um, I guess I'll make a couple small points, uh, two smaller questions and one other bigger point. Um, and that bigger point is, a lot of the book is about government directed or originated propaganda, but what about other sources? You know, I was thinking about your criteria, authority, patriotism, an appeal to authority, patriotism, in and out group dynamics, simple slogans and symbols. And it seems to me that conspiracist Q, Anon Q, is very much similar can be described in exactly those terms, right? Um, that there is a societal sources of propaganda that are working and operating in similar ways as to government or state um, originated. I'm wondering what's different there or if we can really use, not all because you're setting up in terms of public choice and some of the problems are exclusive to the state, but can we use some of your ideas for thinking about other societal sort of originators of propaganda and frame it in those terms. And my last two, one last thing is is more of a comment and then one more question. The comment is one of the things that you highlight that I really take seriously, I've thought a lot about in my own personal career. I take it, you know, it's somewhat personal almost, this idea of avoiding negative topics, socially unaccepted topics, unacceptable topics. You talk about this with the media a lot or, um, you know, sort of self-censorship, the way that editors might pull back on a particular story. And it's framed as a lot about self-interest, right? You want to protect your sources and all of that. But I actually think it's a real problem that affects not just media and not, but also professors. Because for me, for someone like me, or probably for both of you who deal a lot with people who want to engage with people in Washington and actually work in some of that, those avenues, if I say something too outrageous, I don't, those contacts start to reduce and that reduces my long-term effectiveness in doing what I need to do. Now, as a tenured professor, I err on the side of saying what I think needs to be said, because that's the privileged role that I feel I have in society. You know, there's no other person that gets paid and can't get fired to say what they really think. Right. Who else? And so but but still, even in that circumstance, there are costs and it's not always it isn't always this sort of cynical thing. It's, it can be, I certainly agree with you that it can be, but I think there's a tension there, which is how do you push back without being alienated and marginalized by the power structures that be? And I guess I'm just wondering if you ever feel that with the work you're doing, because it's not like it's uncontroversial. I mean, it can't be, there's gotta be people who are really offended by some of the things you say. And so how do you think about that? I don't mean that as a criticism, I mean, just as an observation, right? And, and I guess the last question I have is, um, and this also comes from my own personal experience and things that I've heard and said, can you be anti-militarist without being anti-military? Are those the same things? Because a lot of people in the military, if you say, if you talk about militarism, 
not not everyone, certainly a lot of people get that those are different things, think that it's a code word, it's a it's a fundamentally uh, uh, impugning their character or take it personally or think you're, you know, that, that it's a cloak for some other political agenda. And so I'm wondering what you think about the relationship between militarism and the military and, and how that works together. And those are, anyway, so I had lots of thoughts from your book and thank you so much. I'm looking forward to hearing some of your thinking and reactions. Uh, that's fantastic. So thank you, uh, uh, Randy and, and Risa. I, I wanted to add one other question to the table before I turn back to Chris and to Abby. And it relates to something that Risa raised, which is about uh, sort of uh, private or non-state uh, issues of, of, uh, of propaganda. And I know that you've thought about this, but I, I just want to get it on the table, which is about um, and, and ask you a kind of a weird question, which is, um, how do you respond to Hayek's critique of Galbraith? So what's the difference between propaganda and advertising? And then something's going on because Galbraith is arguing that advertising is about manipulating of wants. Hayek responds back, the non sequitur of the dependence effect. But in many ways, your story about manufacturing militarism is one in which the manipulation, you're making a Galbraithian criticism of the military in some sense, I would, I would suggest. And so I'm wondering how you square that with what you would say about markets. Well, first of all, thank you all very much. I mean, this was extremely thoughtful comments and a lot to think about. So I, I, I'll, I'll say a little bit and then give, give Abby a chance to talk and then we can have a back and forth. But just to kind of go in reverse order, um, or, or to start with Pete's comment, you know, this is something we thought a lot about, the, the, the distinction between advertising and propaganda. And we, we originally had a bunch of text in the main text, but it, it just got too cumbersome, and I felt like we were going off on too many tangents. So it ended up in a, in a footnote on, on page 190 of the book. But I, I do just want to spend a moment on that because our colleague, Richard Wagner, wrote a paper in the late 1970s, a book chapter, actually, where he talks about political advertising. And I, 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 we have a quote in this footnote, and I, I, if I could just read it, it's brief, but I think it got, captures the point better, better than I can. Um, the absence of alternative suppliers of credence services, so, so this is not Wagner speaking now, a credence service is a term that economists use for goods where consumers can't directly observe qualities after purchase. Okay, so this is Wagner again. I'm gonna start over. The absence of alternative suppliers of credence services Suppliers, which exist in the private market, serves to strengthen the sell selling position of government. Advertising then serves essentially a reassuring and reinforcing function within the structure of the monopolistic state. So you buy, you know, you hire someone to come fix your water heater. It's a credence service. You, you can't observe the quality of the service until after the fact. But in that realm, there is... Me market mechanisms, mainly reputation effects, uh, various sources of complaints, various sources of legal recourse, which I would contend at least place some pressure on people to provide quality services. It's not perfect. There's no analogous set of mechanisms in the national security state. Uh, uh, and to the extent there are, they are, in terms of voting and, and those kind of things, is extremely weak. Um, it's not like a, a citizen has any kind of legal recourse um, after wars for, for suing uh, elected officials or bureaucrats who say that, um, you know, who promise not to get into war to get them out. In fact, we know it's even worse than that. We know that courts protect people from engaging in um, activities that many other people would consider war crimes. Uh, and so I think that's the difference. Um, and, and this goes back to, 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 to a couple of the other points about what's the difference between this um, and, and, and propaganda in other settings. And, and, and Riza, you raise an excellent point. I certainly think we can extend our thinking to other things like Q. I guess the point at the end of the day, though, which I think you, you, you mentioned in passing, is I think there's a fundamental distinction between the national security state and these other uh, organizations. I think not just that it, represent, it supposedly represents the interests of the people, it's supposed to protect the person and property of people, but also the American government at least rhetorically operates under the guise of liberalism, a fundamental respect for human dignity, human rights, 
uh, uh, respect for the sovereignty of other nations. Now, whether they do that in practice or not is another question. But I think that doing engaging in this type of, of behavior, nefarious behavior, undermines those very principles. If I could just say two, a couple more things, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Abby. Um, you know, Randy, your, your class point is, is, is very well put, the, the, the setting the framework up in terms of, of class. And I think it's, I, I fully endorse that way of thinking about it. It's what we had in mind. And it's very consistent, of course, with a strand of um, kind of class framing of society uh, that's distinct from the way that it's often associated today, which is Marxism, um, with, the, with the class distinction being one between um, capitalists and, and, and laborers. Uh, and of course, it's somewhat unfair that Marx and, and his followers get to claim the mantle of, of class analysis because there's a, 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 a history of class analysis prior to that. Uh, Franz Oppenheimer, of course, with the state, but also uh, Charles Comte um, in, in the 19th century. And the way these analysts framed class discussions is between the political class or what say we might call the elites and, and the rest of society. Um, and of course, there are Seawright Mills with the power elite, um, who I know you draw upon in your book, uh, Political Capitalism. And of course, al although we didn't bring your work in extent, uh, directly in our book, um, I see it as an extension of it, which is in your book, Political Capitalism, you take, uh, at least my reading is you take Mills' elite theory uh, is, is the power of the elite. But your point is that can't explain the, the mechanics, the operation of it. And so in order to explain the, the, the internal workings of that uh, elite apparatus, we need to bring in insights from public choice. And so by marrying these two together, I, I think you provide quite a rich understanding of how the capitalist system and the political capitalist system works as a distinct order. And I think by leveraging that, we're able to you know, provide something similar, hopefully, in the case of... Um, of the national security state. Uh, one more thing I'll say on Randy, Abby, before I turn it over to you, you, you took issue with our quote on page 16. I see what you're saying. So there is something to be said for leaders getting people on board. But I, I think I would disagree in that I do think, and I, I, I might be wrong about this, so I'm, I'm open to discussion, but I do think that when people engage in propaganda the way we're thinking about it, it's not to get them on board with the mission. It's because they view people as a barrier. If they didn't view them as a barrier, they could say, look, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. Here's the, here's the, the, the kind of costs and benefits that we know now. And then the minute we know more about updating those costs, what those costs and benefits are, we'll update you. Uh, but they don't. Uh, they, they manipulate, conceal information. Uh, and uh, I, I like this quote that we have in here from, from Irving Kristol, um, the godfather of neoconservatism. Uh, and, and, and many people point to this in defense of what's called noble deception. So they, they, they leverage this insight as, as in, in support of secrecy. This is crystal. There are different kinds of truths for different kinds of people. There are truths appropriate for children. There are truths appropriate for students, truths appropriate for educated adults, and truths, truths that are appropriate for highly educated adults. And the notion there should be one set of troops for, truths for everyone in a modern democracy is a fallacy. And of course, when he's talking about the highly educated people, it's him. It's the elites who know things that other people are not educated enough to know. And so from that pers perspective, concealing, manipulating information is certainly to get people around to, to rally around the mission. But it's done in a way which precludes those people from having the opportunity to say, well, wait a second. I, I may not want to participate in this, or I may not want my government to participate in this. And so that's how I would think about that. I have much more to say, but I'm going to stop and let my co-author say some words um, about anything she found of interest. Randy, one of the things that you mentioned is this idea of, uh, of tribalism and, and fear. Um, and one of the things that, that Chris mentioned that I think I would add on to is that I very much see these things as working together, um, both fear and tribalism being things that are, are definitely self self or reinforcing. Um, and just to add on to what, to what Chris said in terms of people being an impediment to what it is that, that the government is doing, the way that we talk about fear is very much in alignment. And, and you mentioned him is Higgs and the ratchet effect. So this idea that you have some event and people become really afraid and then their fear makes them more permissible to things which they otherwise, um, would not accept. 
the example that I typically use, um, it dates me because my students no longer remember this, but I'll ask, um, you know, if you were flying before 9-11, and of course they don't remember that, but told them if you had told someone in 1995 that every time they flew, they were potentially subjected to security procedures that in other contexts would constitute a sexual assault, they would have told you that you were insane, right? Um, But now you have this great fear of terrorism while you're flying. Um, As we talk about in the book, that fear or that probability is grossly exaggerated, but still people are permissible because because they're afraid. I see the, the fear and tribalism piece, especially going together, um, thinking about our chapter, looking at the propaganda of sports and this idea of reinforcing the necessity of the war on terror and then um, kind of collapsing again those really subtle distinctions into something as simple as, as a football game. But that's something that I definitely um, have thought about a lot is the interactions between, between these two variables. Um, the point that you bring up about the supposed trade-offs between liberty and safety is something else that I know Chris and I have talked about a lot, um, the way that people often present that model and kind of what uh, our work implies for for that supposed trade-off. Risa, you bring up a lot of really interesting points as well. The, The discussion too about in the book, we discuss in a number of different places. So in thinking about the way that the buildup to the war in Iraq was portrayed, or thinking about the case of Pat Tillman, or thinking about the DOD explicitly endorsing some projects and not others. You're right, those are very explicit. Um, but there are other things that maybe are are not quite as, as overt. And so I thought about those in terms of how, how it is that those work in in our model. Um, And ultimately, at the end of the day, one of the things that, and Chris may disagree with me, um, though I don't think so, is that, um, you know, intentions or how, like, the intention, even though it might be good, necessarily doesn't drive the the outcome of of what happens. Um, And I wouldn't necessarily say that every individual involved within this kind of overarching machinery is necessarily understanding of exactly what it is that that's going on. But um, I would definitely want to think about it some more. The the question that you raised and, and the comments about the uh, politicization of the military, I find really interesting because it's something actually that I've thought about too um, for a couple of reasons, because you look at things like approval ratings for different branches of the U.S. government and like consistently people continue to to trust the military. And so there's this uh, linkage of all kinds of things to the military, which as you point out, have absolutely nothing to do with the military. Um, But in thinking about that, I'm I'm gonna bridge two two of your comments together. So talking about discussing these issues with members of the military and then saying things which are unpopular. So um, I'm married to a veteran. And frequently um, I find, because I I tell people the first date that we went on, um, as soon as he found out what I was going to research or what I was researching, that he'd never want to talk to me again. And much to my surprise, he agrees with about 85% of what it is that I say. Um, I've had students since who've been active duty and veterans, and I've actually had the chance to present um, my research, including the things that Chris and I have talked about to various groups that oftentimes are populated by a large number of veterans or active duty members of the military. And I find that typically I get one of two responses. So the first response is people are really upset <laughs> with what it is that um, I'm talking about because it winds up being very critical of the military. But the other half responds in a way that's something like this. Yeah, lady, you're telling me stuff that I've lived every day. Like you're discussing these bureaucratic issues, but, but I've lived in it. And so I wonder about that a lot because I don't have any, I, I, I'm not able to put my finger on the pulse of what, what winds up getting people to move in kind of one, one direction or, or the other. But one thing that I've found in terms of, this discussing things which are unpopular. Because one thing that is become abundantly apparent to me and probably also to, to everybody here 
is that criticizing the military in the United States and particularly criticizing the actions of members of the military is still very much like a sacred cow type of thing. So I remember distinctly uh, the Iraq war, you would see bumper stickers in Louisville, Kentucky, which was like a, a very liberal city. And it would say things like support the troops, but end the war. And remember thinking at the time that that seemed like a really weird combination. And yet it is very much one that you continue to see because like you can criticize the overarching institution maybe or the policies, but criticizing the people carrying out those policies is still unacceptable. Um, and I have some theories as to why that's the case, probably like carryover from how people were treated after Vietnam, et cetera, but I'm not um, not 100% sure on that. So it's it's given me a lot to, to think about, but very much appreciate your all's very thoughtful uh, comments and questions um, and appreciate the feedback immensely. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, uh, Randy and Risa and Chris and Abby, especially for this uh, fantastic book. And, uh, you know, I hope everyone goes out there, Stanford University Press, Manufacturing Militarism, um, another great contribution to the literature. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.